Well, uh, today is Maundy Thursday, as Richard uh, reminded us, uh, and we are remembering the last evening that Christ spent with his disciples, uh, the evening uh, before his arrest and his crucifixion. And mainly, Maundy Thursday commemorates three events. It commemorates the institution of the Lord's Supper, it commemorates Christ's washing of his disciples' feet, and it commemorates this new commandment that he gives us to love one another, as we have just read. And as Richard mentioned, that's where the word Maundy, uh, in Maundy Thursday comes from, from the Latin mandatum, which is, has the same root uh, as where commandment comes from. So it's about a mandate. And in this evening's sermon, we want to consider what mandate has Christ placed upon our lives. So let me read to you from Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Please listen to the reading of God's word. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're looking today at this mandate uh, which Jesus gives us in the upper room and which Paul gives us here in this text. And we're going to look at it uh, through three, uh, split up into three parts. Number one, what we must not do. Number two, what we must do. And number three, how we must do it. So let's look at the first one, what we must not do. Again, let me read verses 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The background for this um, verse, for these two verses that Paul has in mind is Deuteronomy 32. There we have the Song of Moses, which is the last words of Moses to the people of Israel um, before they enter into the Promised Land. Remember that God had delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt in the Exodus. But Moses is now concerned um, that Israel, that God's people are prone to wander, that they are prone to unfaithfulness. And so in Deuteronomy 32.5, this is what Moses says to them. They, meaning Israel, have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Notice how similar these uh, texts are, the one from Deuteronomy and the one from Philippians that I just read. In the original Greek uh, of Philippians 2, 14 and 15, Paul uses many of the same words that are used in Deuteronomy 32, 5 in their, in their Greek translation. So Paul is writing to Christians, to God's people, and warning them not to fall in the same sinful behaviors that Israel did before them. On the border to the promised land, Moses tells Israel, you're supposed to be God's people. 
You've been delivered from bondage by Him. He has redeemed you. He has protected you and He has provided for you. He could say those very same things to us. He tells them, and yet your heart is ungrateful. You grumbled against Him in the wilderness when you did not like the food that He provided for you, that He freely gave you. Food that gave you life. You don't act like His children. You act like the pagan world that surrounds you on every side. You don't act like children of God. You act like orphans. That's essentially what Moses is telling the people of Israel. He goes on to tell them in verse 46 and 47, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life. Moses is saying, if you are a child of God, then you must abide by his word. You must abide by his law. You must abide by his mandate. God's word is the source of your life. Paul is telling us the very same thing tonight. In fact, in Philippians 2.16, he says, holding fast to the word of life. He begins by saying, don't do what the Israelites did in the wilderness. Don't do what the Israelites did in the wilderness. Look at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. So Christian, you must not grumble. The word grumble means to murmur, to complain. This attitude reveals a heart that lacks gratitude. Jesus tells us, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This grumbling is an attitude of entitlement, not of humility. It's not the attitude of someone who knows himself or herself to be a sinner who has been forgiven, who has received grace. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, those who murmur and complain betray the ingratitude of what the New Testament calls the spirit of slavery, not the fruit of the spirit of adoption. Christians need to remind themselves many times a day, I am a child of the Heavenly Father. Meditate on that blessing and its far-reaching implications. It will change your life. It will sweeten your spirit. It will put a touch of heaven into your soul. Stop now and think about it. I am a child of the Heavenly Father. Dear Christian, are you a grumbler? Are you quick to dismiss the many blessings that God has given you, not the least of which is your adoption into his family. If you belong to Christ, then your sins have been forgiven. And you have passed from being God's enemy to being his son or to being his daughter. From being dead in your sin to possessing eternal life. Think about what an amazing gift you have been given. Grumbling is entirely inappropriate for the child of God. But that's not all. In verse 14, Paul also says, You must not dispute. You must not dispute. The Greek word translated here as dispute has the same root as dialogue, the English word dialogue. So in one respect, 
When it comes to God's law, to God's commandment, to God's mandate, God is not inviting us to dialogue with him, to discuss the merits of his law, whether or not we should or we shouldn't obey him. God expects us to listen to him and to obey him. Our Heavenly Father knows what is best for his children. We have to trust him. Now, one last thing with respect to grumbling and disputing. Even though the background is the grumbling and disputing of the people of Israel against God, Paul also has in mind grumbling and disputing against one another. There's no place for grumbling, for disputing, for gossip, for slander, for character assassination against one another in the body of Christ, against your pastors, against your elders, against your deacons. Think about how ugly it is when these attitudes prevail within a family. When brothers grumble against sisters, when sisters complain against brothers, when they do so against their parents or when parents do this against their children. There's no place for this within a family, neither is there a place for this within the household of God. In the context of his discussion on the Lord's Supper, Paul writes to the Corinthians, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Paul writes that we ought to examine ourselves before partaking of the Lord's Supper, only participating if we, quote, discern the body. Now, discerning the body not only refers to believing that Christ is present in the sacrament, not carnally, but spiritually, but discerning the body also means in this context that to come to the Lord's table, we must realize that we are one body, the body of Christ, that grumblings and disputes and dissensions among us are out of place and impermissible. Every time we come to the Lord's table, we have the opportunity, we have the obligation to seek reconciliation with one another, to ask for forgiveness from those that we have sinned against, and to grant forgiveness to those who have sinned against us. The Lord's table is for followers of Jesus, for Christians who are known by their love for one another. So we know what we must not do. We must not grumble nor dispute against God nor against one another in the body of Christ. Now we look at point two, what we must do. Again, let me read verses 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. 
So first, Paul calls us to be blameless and innocent. This word innocent has the sense of, uh, of purity, of being pure, of being unmixed. The image, uh, perhaps, to uh, an Old Testament believer would have been, or, or even a New Testament believer of antiquity, would have been that of undiluted wine with all its strength. Or an image of a pure metal without any, uh, that, that hasn't been weakened by, by impurities. So we must not be, um, not, not have mixed or competing loyalties within us. We must not be what James refers to as double-minded. We must be men and women of integrity. Our hearts must be set on loving God. Like obedient sons and daughters, we must endeavor to please our Heavenly Father, to do His will. As parents, we understand how important it is for our children to trust and obey us because it will result in blessing for them. But do we realize that we also have an obligation to trust and obey our Heavenly Father? Or are we living lives without ever considering God's law and will? Do we trust and obey that his mandates are for our good? The word um, blameless here means uh, without reproach. If innocent, being innocent has to do with this internal and private condition of the heart, blameless has to do with the external and public adherence to God's law. It has to do with our witness before a watching world. Paul, like Jesus, is very much concerned that Christians exhibit public lives of godliness, that we bear fruit that reveals our transformed hearts. We must strive to be above reproach, brothers and sisters. This is not pharisaical in nature, by the way. This is not virtue signaling. That would be self-congratulating and self-exalting. That would be to um, have a high view of self and a low view of others. But this is the opposite of that. This is an attitude that flows from humble hearts. Humble hearts that love God and submit to His law so that God's glory may be manifested and so that others may be saved. It's not self-exalting, but God-honoring, and it is loving, both of God and of our neighbors. So look again at Philippians 2:15. Paul here says that we first of all must be blameless and innocent, and second, we must be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So by saying that we are children of God, Paul is reminding us that we have been adopted. That we are no longer children of wrath like the rest of mankind, as he tells us in Ephesians 2, and that precisely because we are no longer children of wrath, we no longer have to be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of living after God, with living godly lives. Even when godly living incites scorn, and even when it incites violence against us in our day and age, Paul is calling us to not be afraid to honor our Father, even if we have to suffer. We are His children. In Romans 8, verses 14 to 17, he writes, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. In other words, we must bear the family resemblance as the Spirit conforms us more and more to the image of Christ. By our godly living, we must look like our Savior. Look at verse 15. Again, it says that we are to be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Without blemish means without imperfection, without defect, without corruption, in other words. Peter and the author of Hebrews use this word to refer to Jesus, to refer to Christ as the sacrificial lamb without blemish. Christ was a worthy sacrifice for our sins, and he remained undefiled even though he took on human flesh at the incarnation and he dwelled among us. He was in the world, but he was not of the world. And Paul calls us as children of God to resemble our older brother and to remain without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Paul is not calling us to abandon society, to head for the mountains, to become monastic and self-serving, but he is calling us to godliness in the midst of perversion. If we are to be without blemish, then we must not allow the world with its perverse ethic and sinful lusts to rule in our hearts. Our heart must belong to our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. James, in chapter 4, says, You adulterous people, do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Make no mistake about it, a godless world of necessity is crooked and twisted. Increasingly, what is good is called evil, and what is evil is called good. And the results have been devastating for society. The world our children are inheriting is a world where the creature has been exalted over the Creator. It is confusing, it is depressing, and it is very dark. But here's what we must do as Christians. Here's what Paul calls us to do in verse 15. Shine as lights in the world. Shine as lights in the world. Do you remember how God guided the people of Israel when they were in the wilderness and darkness fell upon them? He guided them through a pillar of fire. In the midst of darkness, he was their light. And yet many grumbled and rejected him. In John 8, verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And yet, because of the light of Jesus shone in dark places, because he came to save sinners, because he ate with tax collectors and prostitutes, not running away from them, but calling them to repentance, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled and rejected him. Now Paul calls us to shine as lights in the world. The word translated there as light uh, literally can be stars or light bearers. And both of those images are helpful for us. Stars or luminaries, sometimes in older translations you'll read, uh, in, the, in the biblical cosmogony include not just the stars but also the sun and the moon. And um, they provided light in darkness, of course, just like our way of life lived out in the light, must be in stark contrast 
to the darkness of a crooked and twisted generation. Also, these lights, these luminaries, these stars, uh, help mark the passing of time. It would, by, by observing the, the lights in the sky, you could tell the seasons. We live in the year of our Lord, 2022. That's what AD means. Our witness, even as we mark time, is a witness to Jesus Christ. It provides light in the midst of darkness. But also, we, uh, in our Christian walk, mark time in another way that, is, that, that brings honor to Christ, and that is by keeping the Sabbath, by keeping it holy, by worshiping the Lord on that day, by resting from our, from our labors. It is a weekly holiday that we have, a holy day, and we mark the time that way as Christians. It is a way to be a light in this world. Stars and the lights in the sky also help both in antiquity and even now to orient us, to chart a course to safety. In the midst of great confusion, where up is down and down is up, we must shine the light of God's truth because it is the only way to safety. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, the image of light bearer is also helpful for us. It's like a lamp that you can take with you. A lamp that guides your steps, your own steps, as you walk in the midst of darkness. We ourselves have to depend on the light of Christ for our own steps. This lamp allows others to follow you to safety as well. Wherever we go, we carry Christ with us. With our words and with our deeds, we shine light on the glory of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So in summary, what we must not do is we must not grumble or dispute. And what we must do is we must shine the light of Christ, which brings us to our final point. How must we do it then? Verse 16 says, Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Holding fast um, can also mean holding forth. It's, it would be, uh, the same word would be used and translated in both ways. And both are true, by the way. Both are true. We must hold fast to God's word, which the psalmist says is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We must hold fast to God's word, carrying its light with us, letting it guide our steps um, and, and show us the truth. We must hold fast to God's word, even if the world hates it and threatens us, threatens to do us harm because we're holding fast to the word. We must hold fast to God's word because it is our very life. But we must also hold forth God's word because Jesus has given us that loving mission. In the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. In Luke 24, the resurrected Jesus preached the gospel to his disciples on the road to Emmaus, and their hearts burned within them. Our hearts need to burn within us. 
with the fire of the gospel. And we must hold forth that light wherever we go. So how must we shine the light of Christ? By holding fast to the word of life. By clinging to it. By believing it. By obeying it. And by holding forth the word of life. By proclaiming it. By living it out. By bearing fruit with our lives. Paul writes in verse 16 that if we proclaim the gospel and if we persevere, then in the day of Christ, Paul will know that he did not run in vain. So Paul sees his purpose as a race. And a race, of course, entails hard work. Paul labors, he trains, he competes, he fights. On, that, on the day of Christ, nothing will remain hidden. And we will learn that no effort for Christ's kingdom was in vain. Every act of service in Christ's kingdom, every word of exhortation, every demonstration of Christ's love will be used by God for his glory and for our good. So Paul writes in verses 17 and 18, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul appeals to the sacrificial system here to underscore the importance of the gospel. When an animal was sacrificed, sometimes a drink offering was poured out with it to confirm or to ratify the offering. It was equivalent to crying out amen to what that sacrifice represented. In his illustration, Paul writes that he would gladly have his life poured out as an amen to the main sacrifice, which is the faith of believers. You see, eternal life is what's at stake, and God's glory is the reward. And if I have to give up my life, Paul writes, it would have been worth it. I rejoice, and so should you. Because if you belong to Christ, then your life is hidden in him, and you are secure. And death, ultimately, will lose its sting. In the upper room, Christ mandated that we come together as one body and feed on him by faith. No grumbling or disputing is permissible. He mandated that we humble ourselves and serve others, that we shine as lights in this world, no matter the cost. And he mandated that we witness to others through our love for one another, because we are members of God's family. We have been adopted, and we ought to be blameless and innocent. We should be above reproach in the way that we treat one another. Paul taught us the same thing in Philippians 2 because he beheld Christ's glorious example. So let me close with the words that immediately uh, precede um, our text, uh, Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. This is the indicative to the imperative that we have studied this evening. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let us hold fast to this hope and let us hold forth this promise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the gospel 
is the source of our life. And not just life now, not just a life that is worth living and gives us hope, but eternal life, life everlasting, the only real, true life. Father, may we hold fast to that truth. May we persevere, but may we also hold it forth. May we proclaim the gospel boldly. May we proclaim it graciously. May we proclaim it believing, Father, that your power through your spirit is nestled therein and that everyone who receives it by faith will be turned from darkness and into light and will receive eternal life. We'll no longer be a child of wrath, but we'll be a child of God, even as we are. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.